Good morning. It's good to see all of you. Thank you for coming, joining us for worship here at Ivy Creek Baptist Church this morning. I'm reminded of a familiar verse that actually comes from uh, the text that we're going to be reading here shortly this morning. It's from Psalm 122, verse 1. I was glad when they said unto me, let us go into the house of the Lord. Many of you learned that verse as a kid, and I'm just going to tell you, it's personal to me right now. I am really glad that Caroline said unto me this morning, let's go to the house of the Lord. Because many of you may already know our story. We don't have a house to go to at the moment. We've sold our house that we lived in, and we're waiting to move into our new home tomorrow, we hope. And so for the moment, this is the house that we've got. And I want you to know it's been good to be here among God's people this morning, to have some familiarity, to be able to see some faces. As a matter of fact, there's a couple of faces out there that have known me since I was about this high. So a lot of you can't talk to them this morning because they can tell you stories about me that I might not want you to know. But nevertheless, it has been good to be in the house of the Lord this morning. Amen? If you have your Bibles with you, and I certainly hope that you, you do, please take them and turn to the Psalms this morning. We're going to be looking at Psalm 121 and 122. Last week, we began a new series through the Psalms. We're actually through, through 15 of the Psalms, beginning in Psalm 120. It's a series that, that is, is a, uh, these psalms are, are entitled the Psalms of the Ascent. And I mentioned to you last week that these individual psalms written by different people at different times were later taken and assembled into a smaller hymnal and, and included in the, the, the Psalter, in the book of Psalms. And, and, and they, were done, they, they were put together with an intent in mind. I believe in many cases there's a, there's a connection between them and our goal as we work our way through them is to find out what that connection is and how that applies to our lives today. I believe that's really the case as we look at the first three Psalms of the Psalms of the Ascent, Psalm 120, 121, and 122. We looked at Psalm 120 last week, and, and, and really in that psalm, it, it kind of describes the impetus for the beginning of this journey to the heart of God that we read about in these psalms. If you remember, as we read through that, that 120th Psalm, what we understood was that the, 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 the pilgrim there, he's, he kind of wakes up and he looks around at the world around him and he's dissatisfied with what he sees. He's dissatisfied with a world that lies to him and lies about him. And he longs to go home. He's desirous of, of traveling back to where his home is. Now, as we move from Psalm 120 into Psalm 121 and 122 that we will look at this morning, in 121, we get a picture of the journey itself that the, that the traveler goes on, a journey that's fraught with trouble and, and, and difficulty as he makes his way home. But then in Psalm 122, we find that he gets there and we see the joy that overwhelms the weary pilgrim once he comes into the presence of God. Now, that sort of gives you a, a, a sort of an, an overview of how these three psalms connect together and the cohesiveness with which I believe that they are assembled together. Now, before we read them, though, this morning, I want to remind you of what I told you in our introduction last week. I mentioned that there have been a number of different suggestions as to why these psalms, these 15 psalms, have been named the Psalms of the Ascents. It's, it, it's my opinion that these psalms were ultimately put together because they were songs that these Hebrew pilgrims sung as they made their way up the mountain of, to go into Jerusalem on their triannual visits there when they would go to celebrate the Feast of Passover and the Feast of Pentecost and, and the Feast of Tabernacles. 
And remember that Jerusalem is the highest point in Palestine. As a matter of fact, it sits at an elevation of 2,577 feet above sea level. Jerusalem, 13 miles to the east of the city, is the Dead Sea. 32 miles to the west of Jerusalem is the Mediterranean Sea. And 80 miles to the north of Jerusalem is the, the, dead, is, is the Sea of Galilee. So no matter where you come from in Palestine, you know what? You're always ascending. You're always going uphill. And for many of us, we understand that whenever you make an uphill journey, it's not always an easy journey to make. In fact, in reading some accounts this week of those who have, have ascended up the hill into Jerusalem, they describe how, how, how difficult it is to even travel, even in modern times when you're in a vehicle or in, you're in a touring bus, to, to make it through some of those turns and, and to go through some of those areas, how, how difficult that travel is and even scary it is for some of those that make those, those, those uh, trips. But imagine if you were an ancient Hebrew and you were walking by foot up those steep, narrow slopes. Imagine if you were on the back of a, of a, of a beast of burden or, or you were leading a pack of people as they were going, exposed to the sun, exposed to the rain, having to sleep out in the elements, carrying all of your own stuff on your back so that you would have all the, the resources that you would need for staying about a week's uh, time inside the city walls. Out there on those steep and narrow roads and on those trails, there was the ever-present danger of slipping and falling. There was the, the danger of wild animals. There was the danger of, of thieves and robbers that would attempt to do harm. If we can get all of those kind of inherent dangers in, in your mind and begin to try to picture what it was like to make that trip to Jerusalem for all of these pilgrims throughout Palestine, then you begin to appreciate the words of Psalm 121. You begin to understand why this song would have meant so much to those people as they set out on their journey and they began to sing it to themselves. And we will also understand the joy that would have overwhelmed them when they actually got there, as Psalm 122 will tell us. When they finally got to the city and were able to be at their destination, the sheer joy of being inside that city would have overwhelmed their hearts. So that sort of sets the stage and gives us the mental images that we need to be able to really appreciate these psalms. Let's read them this morning. The 121st Psalm says this, God, the help of those who seek Him, a song of ascents. Verse 1, I will lift up my eyes to the hills. From whence comes my help? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not allow your foot to be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel shall neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your helper. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord shall preserve you from all evil. He shall preserve your soul. The Lord shall preserve your going out and your coming in from this time forth and even forevermore. Psalm 122. The joy of going to the house of the Lord. A song of ascents of David. I was glad when they said to me, let us go into the house of the Lord. Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem is built as a city that is compact together where the tribes go up. The tribes of the Lord to the testimony of Israel to give thanks to the name of the Lord. 
For the thrones are set there for judgment. The thrones of the house of David. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they prosper who love you. Peace be within your walls. Prosperity within your palaces. For the sake of my brethren and companions, I will now say, peace be within you. Because of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God for the people of God. Let's pray together this morning. Our Father, we thank you for you, the opportunity that is extended to us to be able to gather together in this place, to open your holy word, to be able to read it, to be able to understand it and then apply it to our lives. Thank you for the truth that is contained there. Your word is truth, and you have promised that your word will never return into you void. So, Lord, we pray this morning that our hearts would be transformed by the, by the understanding and by the power of your Holy Spirit working through that which you have revealed to us through your word. Thank you that you have united our hearts together in song and being able to worship you through music. Now I pray that you'd unite our hearts together around this word that we might be encouraged as we too make our journey toward the heart of God. This I pray in Christ's name. Amen. When I, when I was reading through here, these, these psalms may become more familiar as you hear them read. As a matter of fact, the 121st Psalm, many people have used that psalm to quote it or to pray it over those who are going on a trip. You, you, in fact, some of you may have actually done that, prayed that 121st Psalm over someone who was going on an extended journey of some sort. It's somewhere along the way. It's, it's often referred to as the traveler's psalm. And it's, it acknowledges the fact that if we are going to get to our destination safely, the only way that we will know we get there safely is because God helps us. God in His providence and in His kindness and in His goodness and in His protection over us gets us to where we're going safely. And that issue of help really is at the center of this psalm. In fact, the psalmist says in verse 1, I will lift up my eyes to the hills from whence comes my help. Now, scholars have, have long tried to explain what the psalmist is actually saying in verse 1. Is he making a statement or is he asking a question? Now, if you are reading from the King James Version this morning, you will notice that this verse is a statement. It translates it this way, I will lift mine eyes unto the hills from whence cometh my help. It's written as a statement that basically from that understanding says that, that God dwells in the mountains and, and that when we lift our eyes, we will see that that is where he is and that he will come to our aid when we need him. But some of your versions, including the New King James that I just read from you from this morning, actually present verse 1 as a question. It's an interrogative that brings up there. In fact, the, the question basically comes away this way. From where does my help come? And many scholars have, have pointed out that based upon it being interpreted as a question, that, that the understanding is the hills obviously did not provide the psalmist with the help that he was looking for. As a matter of fact, the hills were where all the danger lay. It was in the hills where the, where the beasts that could have come out and attacked him were. It was in the hills where the, the robbers and the thieves were. And so obviously when he looks to the hills, he sees the potential for threat and for danger. And so it causes him to question, from whence comes my help? From where is my help going to come as I make my way up the hill? And then there's still a third way of looking at it. During the time of Israel's falling away, during the time of their rebellion 
and even before when the Canaanites inhabited this area, it was on the hills and on the high places where all of the idolatry took place. That's where all of the, 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 the temples, the cultic temples and the cultic prostitution took place. It was there where the, where the human sacrifices were offered. And so the, the understanding here is that when this weary traveler is making his way up that ascent into Jerusalem, he looks to the hills, there he sees all of these outposts of, of, of idols and, and altars that were assembled. And so the question really is a rhetorical question. Does my help come from there? And the obvious answer to that question is no. So there's the three ways that you can look at verse 1. I don't know that I can answer which one of those is right. Here's what I can point you to is what he says in verse 2. Because in verse 2, he puts all of the questions at ease. Because he asks the question or he makes a statement in verse 2. He says, my help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Now, we're going to come back to that in just a minute. I already get excited when I start thinking about it. But I want to stop for a second. I want to push you forward through this song. Because I want you to see that he continues to describe that Lord to us. He tells us something important. Look down in verses 3 and 4. He tells us, he describes the Lord this way. He tells us that the Lord is the one who keeps you and will not slumber. He who keeps Israel shall never slumber or sleep. Verse 5, he says definitively, the Lord is your keeper. Then in verses 7 and 8, notice that the New King James changes the word there, but the word in Hebrew has not changed. It's still the same word. And so he says, The Lord shall preserve or keep you from all evil. He shall preserve or keep your soul. The Lord shall preserve or keep you, keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. Now make no mistake about it. When you see the same word occur again and again and again, there's, there's reason for that. And so what the psalmist is telling us is that once we've repented of our sin, once we've turned from the world in which we live and we've set our gate to following Christ and following God on the road toward His heart and we've embraced the truth of God's Word, once we've latched on to Christ and we've become one of His disciples on this journey toward His heart, then when we face trouble and when we face danger as we make our way on that journey, then He tells us we are to fix our eyes on the one who guards us, the one who preserves us, the one who keeps us. And that leads me to the first point that I want you to see this morning. The first point on your outline is this. As journeying pilgrims, we must keep our eyes on the one who keeps us. Now you guys know I'm fond of what I call my sermon in a sentence. That's your sermon in a sentence for Psalm 121 right there. As journeying pilgrims, we are to keep our eyes on the one who keeps us. Now, I want to point out three blessings that really flow as a result of that. And those are the subpoints that you'll find this morning. Subpoint A is this God who created everything is your personal helper. See if you can wrap your mind around that. God who created everything is your personal helper. The psalmist answers his own question. He says, where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He knew his help didn't come from those idols. He knew his help didn't come from the mountains as majestic as they may have been. 
Rather, he knew his help came from the maker of the mountains. And not just the mountains, but the maker of everything in this universe. And he didn't just stand out there and make those things and stay distant from the earth, but he is also the God who comes near and comes close and helps us in our very moments of need. I love what Derek Kidner has written in his commentary about this passage. He says, the thought of this verse leaps beyond the hills to the universe, beyond the universe to its maker. Here is living help, primary, personal, wise, and immeasurable. Friend, understand this. The God who spoke and things came into existence. He created everything from nothing. That God who is infinite in His power, infinite in His creativity, infinite in His ability, is the personal God who says, I will never leave you nor forsake you no matter where you go, no matter what you face. The God who created thing, everything is your personal helper. But notice the next point. God who is always alert protects and defends us. Twice the psalmist makes sure that we understand God doesn't take nap breaks. I have to. I'm getting older and I like them even more. Nap breaks are good, especially when you're moving. Y'all make sure you tell Caroline that. It's good for me. When I was reading this this week, I was reminded of what Elijah... You remember Elijah in 1 Kings 18? Remember the prophets of Baal? They put out all this stuff and they were having this contest. Who was the real God? And, and, and so all of Baal's prophets, man, they were praying and they were sweating and they were lashing themselves and they were praying that their God would come down and lick up and, and consume the offering that was there and nothing was happening and Elijah's over there, he's looking at his watch going, wow, boy, he sure is taking a long time. Maybe he's tired. Maybe he's taking a nap. Maybe he's gone to the bathroom. That, that was how Elijah was taunting those prophets of Baal. What the psalmist tells us is that God never takes breaks. God is never not alert. God is never taking a nap and is unaware of what's going on in your life. It doesn't matter what's happening with you. You may feel as if God doesn't know who you are. You may feel as if He has turned a blind eye to you. But the Bible tells us in no uncertain terms that God never sleeps or slumbers. He knows you. He knows what's going on in your life. He's always alert. He's always watchful. He's always guarding your way. And that's incredibly good news because I want you to know there's times when our feet slip. There's times when I, I think about these travelers as they were making their way up the mountain of God to go to the city. And they're going up there and they're up at these, these really these steep, narrow trails. You know, there was times when a rock could have turned over and their ankle turned and they sprained an ankle. They could have fallen and broken a hip or, or broken an elbow when they hit. Some of those sheer cliffs were so dangerous that if they fell, they would have fallen to their ultimate death. Here's the point. Does that mean that we're never going to fall? Does that mean that we'll never slip? Does that mean that we'll never fall and break a hip? You know... What we would be wise to note is that though this psalm is speaking about the physical traveler, it is nevertheless pointing us to our spiritual journey that we're on toward the heart of God. 
And if we understand that, if we understand that what it's speaking to is the journey that we have to go to the heart of God, what we'll understand is exactly what Jude wrote about in the New Testament. In Jude verse 24, he writes this, God is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of His glory with exceeding joy. Friend, it means that the same God who saved you will continue to save you and will keep you and clutch you in His hands and He will never let the righteous fall. And I want you to know not only that, but He protects us, He defends us. He's the shade at our right hand, the psalmist writes. The right hand was the one that was used to wield the sword. Therefore, God defends us by sheltering us under the shadow of His wing. He protects us through His provision by day. In other words, everything that can come at us in the daylight, and He protects us at night. When, every, when the moon is shining, He keeps us from anything that can happen both day and night. Why? Because He never sleeps and He never slumbers. He's always watchful. That leads me to the third sub-point under point number one. It's this. God, whose power is limitless, preserves us both now and forever. See, listen, the God who made the universe, He's the one that holds it together. The same God who never takes a break or time off, He's the same God who, who knows our going out and He knows our coming in. He watches over us from the day that we're born to the day that we die, and He sees everything that happens in between. So no matter where you go and no matter what you do, God will keep you always. To quote Kidner once more, he says this, It would be hard to decide which half of verse 8 is more encouraging. The fact that it starts from now or that it runs on, not to the end of time, but without end. You ever considered that? It's not that God protects us to the end of time. It's the fact that God protects us from now for eternity and a life without end. So this psalm is all about the journey. And it tells us that we are to keep our eyes on the one who keeps us. And as Christians who have placed our faith and our trust in Jesus Christ, we're reminded of what the writer of Hebrews says. You see, the writer of Hebrews is also writing to a bunch of Hebrew pilgrims as well at a later time, but he writes informed about what Jesus Christ has come to do. And in Hebrews 12, verses 1 and 2, the writer of Hebrews writes this. He says, Let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross and despising the shame, and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Brothers and sisters, we are to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. And in doing so, we must remember that Jesus told us that in this world we will have trouble. There will be moments when our feet slip. There will be times when we fall. There will be trouble that we experience, but Jesus says, do not be overcome with trouble, because I have overcome the world. He's the same Christ who said, all of those that you have put into my hand, there will be none who can come and snatch them out of it. So when we make our journey, fraught with trouble, difficult, uphill, remember, keep your eyes on the one who keeps you. That's the first thing that this text presents us with. Now let's look at the second one, Psalm 122. Because if we're to do that, if we're to keep our eyes on the one who keeps us, Psalm 122 tells us the next point. The next point on your outline is this. No, point number two is this. As journeying pilgrims, we must keep ourselves 
connected to the community of believers. We must keep ourselves connected to the community of believers. Psalm 122 is attributed to, to King David, and that's caused some trouble for people throughout the, the centuries because he talks about being in Jerusalem, and, and the implication of that is that he's worshiping there, and so they immediately assume that that means the temple was there, and as we know from history, David did not build the temple. It, it was his son Solomon who built the temple, and so many have said, well, this psalm obviously could not have been written by David. But let me say this to you. Even during the time of the life of David, Jerusalem was a very important place. It was still considered the city of God. As you well might remember, it was, it was in that city that the Ark of the Covenant was brought back after it had been taken away from, from, from Israel. And then they had, the Philistines had had it, and they, then, then David was able to procure it and bring it back into Jerusalem. And he danced with great joy when he brought the Ark of the Covenant back into Jerusalem. The city of God was the place where, where even during David's time, it was considered that was where God dwelt among his people. In fact, David is so excited that Josh Moody has commented that David's poetry, when he's writing here in Psalm 122, reads like a love poem. He says he's excited, he's thrilled, he's bubbling over. He can't believe that he has gotten to Jerusalem to be where God is and to be among God's people to be able to worship God. Now, what I, you and I must recognize is that for him and for millions and millions of other Israel, Israelites, as they came there, they recognized that, that this was the place where they united in unison together to worship God. And consequently, as marvelous and as great as the city of Jerusalem was, and as beautiful and as magnificent as the temple would ultimately become during the time of Solomon, we must understand that what lay behind the thrill that David writes about here was the celebration of worship of the one true God. To quote Phil Johnson, he says, Specifically, this is a psalm about the joys of worship and its message is that the very essence of heaven is brought to earth when the people of God gather to worship Him with their collective praise. And that leads me to the first sub-point that I want you to see this morning. Sub-point under point number two is this. A love for God should translate into a love for His church. A love for God should translate into love for his church. As one author put it, the author of this psalm is clearly not like one of those people who loves God but is not too sure about the church. For him, as in the New Testament too, God and his people are intimately connected. Stephen Uly, he's written this, that there are those who profess to be Christians, those who claim to belong to the head, that is Christ, who at the same time reject or at least sorely neglect the body, that is, the church. He writes, These people claim to be followers of Christ, yet they see no need to pursue, cultivate, or maintain a connection or involvement in a local church. Now that being stated, compare that thought to that of David. David, when he writes, he says he feels the most alive when he is connected with his brothers and sisters, worshiping together the one true and living God. That's what he looks forward to more than anything else. He literally cannot wait to be in that place. I won't ask you for a show of hands this morning, but how many of you approach coming together to worship God with that same level of enthusiasm? How many of you got up this morning and, man, you didn't, you didn't brush your teeth. You just got up and said, I can't wait 
to get there. I'm just throwing whatever I got on so I can get to the house of the Lord this morning. Or is gathering with God's people just something that you do? It's just part of your weekly routine. You just kind of do it every Sunday. You, you probably really would rather not do there, but the fact is either your wife or your husband or your parents or your children are just going to they're going to berate you, so you're just going to go to appease them. And I'll go. I don't really want to be there. David's attitude and his excitement about gathering with God's people for the purpose of worshiping the one true God serves as a challenge to each of us to recognize the absolute privilege that we are given to gather in the presence of God himself to worship him alongside our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. I'm reminded again of what the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25. He says, and let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another so much more, the more as you see the day approaching. Brothers and sisters, if we have trusted in Christ to be our Lord and Savior, then that is what we are. We are brothers and sisters. We are a family. It is a relationship. And that fellowship that we have with one another then points us to something else that I believe is important that comes from this text. It's the next point on your outline. Point B under number two is this. Corporate praise and worship of God unites individuals who share a love for God's Word and His glory. I love how the personal pronouns change in the first verse of this psalm. I was glad when they said unto me, let us go into the house of the Lord. And then he says, our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Friends, if there was anybody in Scripture who was more familiar with what it meant to spend solitary time in meditation, I don't know if it would have been anybody other than David. Remember how he spent the first part of his life? He was a shepherd boy taking care of his father's sheep out in the pastures, and his best friends were the sheep. There was no one else for him to commune and talk with. He spent time alone with God, and it was there that God hardened him and made him into the man that he would want him to be. He taught him what it meant to be a servant and to be a pastor. He taught him all of those things, and David spent time alone with God. It was from that moment that he spent there that we get many of the Psalms that we get of David. But listen, if that was the pinnacle, if that was the, all that there was, if that was the, the capstone of everything was to spend time alone with God, we'd have no need of David writing Psalm 122. We'd have no need of the rest of Scripture that tells us to assemble ourselves together. Spending time alone with God is absolutely necessary in the life of a believer, but so is bringing ourselves together collectively as brothers and sisters in Christ to worship in unison together. Absolutely important. Notice something else that David tells us in verses 3 and 4. He says, Jerusalem is built as a city that is compacted together where the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, to the testimony of Israel, to give thanks to the name of the Lord. Notice that according to what David writes here, individualism takes a back seat to community. David rejoices that all the tribes, not just his tribe, that all the tribes come together for worship of God. 
to quote Josh Moody again, he says, part of the resisting of individualism is resisting the natural tribal, the natural human tribalism that makes you want to just club together with only the people who are like you. But he says, church is bigger than that. How can that be true? How can church be bigger than that? Here's how it's true. When we come together, what we recognize is, is that not a one of us is sin-free. Each of us in our own cataclysmically sinful way begins a, a journey that is far from God. We are destined for hell. But God in His mercy and in His grace saves us. He gives us a new name. He gives us a new destination. He puts our feet on a new path. And in doing so, you know what he does? He joins us up with other saved sinners just like we are. People that have bumps, warts, and bruises and all, and he brings us together into a family, and together we begin to make our journey toward the heart of God. And he intersects our lives with theirs so that together we can bring praise and adoration to God. David says that the tribes of Israel come together to give thanks to the name of the Lord. And when that happens, the attention is not upon one individual or just a few individuals. Friends, if you come here and you come here strictly for me, you're coming for the wrong reason. The Bible tells us we don't come together to worship the pastor, to lift the pastor up, because I will fail you, I promise. I won't do it intentionally, but I promise you, I will mess up and fail you. But there is a God that we come to worship this morning who will never fail you. He is a God who never sleeps and never slumbers and will always take care of you. And the purpose for why we gather is to lift Him up and to bring glory to His name. Because all of us are transitory. We'll be here today, but we might not be here tomorrow. But God stands forever. And He brings those of us together as family that we might worship Him and give Him thanks. While I'm on that point and I'm preaching, let me just go ahead and preach another message just for a second. Bear with me. Let me just say that that's also why we have Sunday school. And that's why we have small group Bible study. You see, it's in those smaller groups. It's where interactions and where discussions can take place. It's where relationships are formed. It's where bonds among brothers and sisters are, are created. And as family and as believing units, as we come together, we are stronger in those smaller units. God's Word can be discussed and applied. And there is also, when you are in a group like that, it's where the individual is then made accountable. Listen, discipleship was never intended to be accomplished in a vacuum. But in community, among believers who lift one another up and who encourage one another on, toward good works in Christ Jesus. And that brings me to the last point that I want you to see this morning. The last point on your outline this morning is this. We must pray for and seek the peace, prosperity, and good of the church. Many have taken the final verses of Psalm 122 as literally a command to pray specifically for the peace of Israel. And, and while prayers for, the, for that nature are good, in light of in light of the fact that we have understood Jerusalem here to be indicative of the church, then the gathering of God's people for the purpose of worshiping Him, we must understand that we have an obligation to pray for and seek the peace and prosperity and good of the church. From what David writes, we can see that he was serious about seeing Jerusalem continue to be a place where all the tribes of Israel could come and worship. 
I mean, think about it. If war broke out in Jerusalem, then, then the tribes couldn't come there and worship God unhindered. If there was war going on there, if there was discord and there was trouble, there would be no way that all those folks, all of his brothers and sisters from all across Palestine could be at peace and be able at harmony to be able to worship God. So consequently, praying for the peace of Israel was important to David because he wanted to see the worship of God to go on unhindered. Brothers and sisters, that's why we ought to pray for the peace and the prosperity and the good of our church for the exact same reason that the worship of God among the family of God, among the believers of God, can go on unhindered. That's why we pray and we seek for that good. David's prayer was this, for the sake of my brethren and my companions, I will now say, peace be within you. Because of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. His actions and his prayers centered around Jerusalem being safeguarded so that the worship of God's people could continue. And might I say that's exactly what our actions and what our prayers ought to be centered around as well. And not just for our church, but for other churches out there as well, that they too would be places where God can be worshipped unhindered. So those are the things that we learn from these two psalms. As we journey down the road that God has called us on toward his heart, we must keep our eyes focused on the one who keeps us and we must keep ourselves connected to the community of believers. And doing so will bring about great privileges to us. And that leads me to my sermon in the sentence this morning, which is this. As disciples journeying toward the heart of God, the assurance of God's constant and everlasting protection, coupled with the blessing and joy of worshiping Him alongside of the believers, will keep us from worry and fear and unite us in peace and love. Friends, this life will present us with trouble. And we'll be tempted to worry and ease into despair. But we must always remember that the same God who was there when our lives began, the same God that called us to himself and saved us by his matchless grace will continue to save us, will continue to protect us, will continue to go before us and guard our way. And he will be the same God who unites us with others, and their testimony will be like ours. I'm nothing but a sinner that was saved by grace, and I come to do nothing more than to lift my voice in praise to God our Father. And because we recognize that we have been forgiven of our sins, it allows us to forgive the sins of others who sin against us. And that's how we stay connected, and that's how peace continues, and how prosperity continues, and how the good of the church continues. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God for the people of God. Let's pray together.